you with you here today. Hey, before I bring my guest on, I wanted to remind you about the Patreon link down in the show notes. Uh, joining my Patreon is a great way to bring more great podcast content to you. Uh, episodes like my episode with John Frame or James Wood, talking about uh, various issues, various concerns in the church today, how we can think better, uh, love God better, uh, more deeply, and love our neighbors. And so if you would sign up there at any dollar amount, it really does help. Uh, no no dollar amount is too small uh, to partner with me. And we have some conversations there on the back end uh, on the Patreon uh, to help me bring great content your way. So sign up there uh, as you're able. Check out the, uh, the link in the show notes. But today we've got Dr. Bradley Green with us. Dr. Bradley Green is at Union University. He also has connections with Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. But he's based out of Jackson, Tennessee. I met... Dr. Green over in uh, Oxford when I was there this summer. He was a presenter there, and it was so great to meet him because he's a Newton House Fellow. So this is a new program they're starting over in Oxford. It's the second year it's been around, and it's a ministry uh, opportunity, uh, kind of an ancillary uh, study opportunity there for students at Oxford to get connected to evangelical scholarships, to to, uh, to network, and to grow in that way. So Dr. Bradley Green was there and presented on uh, affections and the knowledge of God, which if you read my book, uh, also promo that right off the top, uh, you're going to know that that's, uh, that's something that is deeply connected to my own work. And so, um, Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Hey, Chase, it's, it's a good to see you again and great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd love to dive into the, uh, the talk you gave a little bit yeah. on the affections and the knowledge of God. And I think if I remember right, well, let's get this cleared up. Is it Augustine or Augustine? Yeah. You know, I used to joke when we, we started a school called Augustine School, and I said, well, as long as you'll you know, pay tuition and come to school, you can call, call it whatever you want. Uh, I think <laughs> technically, I think probably Augustine is what I've gone with. Um, you know, uh, Augustinus maybe is even a little better, but uh, I, let's just say <laughs> Augustine for now, and, and then we'll go with that. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Now, you were connecting, because I, I believe uh, you came out with a book in 2020, and I'll drop a link to that uh, below, but you came out with a book on Augustine, mm. and um, I guess maybe we should start there. Sure. What What was your kind of angle in the book? Um, yeah. Because I think that informed your talk a little bit. So what was kind of your approach to writing a book on Augustine, yeah. <laughs> who, uh, who obviously is... Uh, you know, very, uh, very well acclaimed in evangelicalism yep. right now. Yep. Uh, what was kind of your approach there? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So Michael Haken uh, is editing this series for Christian Focus and asked me to write the book a number of years ago. And I, I said yes. And in my mind, I may have thought, oh, this will be easy, just an intro to Augustine. But I'm kind of looking at my, I have my Augustine stuff all right here. And it's, it's several feet, you know, I think 5 million words or something. It's an amazing corpus. I did my dissertation in part on Augustine, and um, I guess that the short backstory is, as, as a PhD student at Baylor, um, in, the, in the midst of trying to understand modernism, postmodernism, etc., Augustine was kind of a lifeline to me. Um, not confessions, but um, some of his writings on signs and words and language helped me to kind of begin to, or to understand maybe a Christian theology or philosophy of language, which was really a way of uh, trying to have something to say in light of Jacques Derrida and deconstructionism. And that, that kind of really shaped me, because here I found 
you know, someone, what, 1,600 years ago or so, kind of offering a better response to contemporary challenges than I was reading elsewhere. So there's a lot of existential, personal, spiritual reasons why I, I grew to love Augustine. Writing the book was hard. It's, it's, it's an introductory book, but it's meant to say, here's the basics of Augustine. Here's a Protestant engagement with Augustine, because he certainly is, he's, we would affirm a lot of what he has to say. He built the foundation, in a sense, for medieval Catholicism in another sense. So we would depart from him in ways, but um, he's 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 well worth having as a lifelong dialogue partner, theology, mm -hmm. culture, ethics, etc. Um, so um, yeah, it was a joy to write. It's nice to have have written, <laughs> have it done. Um, <laughs> but it's my attempt to engage Augustine and not to make him a Protestant, but to engage him as a Protestant and to work through some some of the issues there. That's great. Yeah. Uh, well, I look forward to picking that up. I, I know when I read Confessions for the first time, um, I, I I confess that it, it felt complicated to read. Yeah. And but that's that's the way older books tend to be, anyways, with languages. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's until right. you get familiar with the the style, the cadence, and all that stuff, uh, it can be challenging. But Confessions was great. Um, and I still, I, you know, I'm going to confess on the air. I still have not read City of God, and that's uh, that's to my own, uh, you know, ill reputation. But uh, but yeah, I, I hear it's you know his kind of magnum opus. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it is fair to say, and I wouldn't be ashamed of not. I mean, it's 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 a long book, and the first half can be pretty turgid, and and you know, you wonder if it would get published today if an editor might say. <laughs> Hey Augusta, I know you're you're about to be a big name and all, but this is about twice as long as it needs to be, you know. That's true. Uh, and um, no, it is it is well worth your time um, to work through. Certainly, I'd say you know, Confessions, uh, City of God, maybe somewhat under overlooked is his book on the Trinity, which is a classic as well. But um, no, uh, the City of God is is well worth one's time. Jump in anywhere, maybe book up, you know, halfway through when you start to talk about the origin of the city of God might be if you kind of want to get to the that stuff because um, he's engaging challenges to the faith and he kind of works out in a sense of biblical theology of history, you might say, or a biblical philosophy of, right. of history. And um, and it's well worth uh, well worth one's time. Yeah, I actually uh, just this morning, just since we're talking about him. Uh, there was a passage I came across, uh, James Wood was on Twitter and he, he's kind of, uh, his Twitter account just basically like screenshots of books he's reading uh -huh. and some thoughts. And he was posting this letter, uh, between Augustine and Nectarius. And here's the preface of the letter. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was interesting. The following exchange of letters between Augustine and Nectarius is concerned with a riot which took place during illegal pagan celebrations in Calama, huh. Nectarius's hometown, not far from Hippo. Huh. Nectarius urges Augustine to intervene to protect his fellow pagans from legal penalties. Huh. And I'm like, wow, that's uh, that'd be a fascinating thing to read. I don't know where James is getting that. Yeah, because uh, it's a screenshot of a book, but uh, but very interesting stuff. Well, I'll I'll say briefly if um. There's a great big book on Augustine by Sergei Lancel, a French a Frenchman. I think he's passed away. I read it about 10, 15 years ago. But it's um, reading that book on Augustine, all of a sudden I realized, ah, okay. In my mind, I, it was Augustine the theologian. 
But as I read that, I said, oh, okay, here's Augustine the pastor. So here's Augustine, right. um, you know, trying to uh, help a young couple, you know, stay married. Or here he's going to the local jail to plea for leniency for one of his prisoners. And so here's someone who is um, a busy pastor staying up late at night, we assume, with his lamp writing. But he wasn't an ivory tower theologian. He was a busy pastor engaged in very typical, we might say mundane issues. Sure. Um, and so for that reason, he's worth, you know, he's a great model in that sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's get to the, uh, the kind of emphasis of your talk with knowledge and affections. Typically when people think about affections, uh, they reduce it to emotions. And for a lot of evangelicals in, in their spirituality, <clears throat> emotions weigh heavy, um, yeah. kind of a subjective experience with, with God. And then you get knowledge. And for some reformed, uh, you know, Christians, knowledge is kind of the, the uh, at least foundation, if, if not the, the capstone of achievement in their spiritual journey with Jesus. And, um, and so talk me through, if I'm, if I'm recalling correctly, these were some of the things you yeah. touched on in your talk, but kind of, I, I would just want my listeners to hear what you kind of shared kind of in a condensed form, if you would. Sure. Happy, happy to do that, Chase. Yeah. So that paper for Newton House, I do encourage folks to, to look up Newton House and it's, it's a great dream. Hope, hope it thrives and, and grows and develops. And um, so my talk was entitled Affections and the Knowledge of God. I may end up editing it and putting it out there somewhere. Um, the heart of it is that we are we are knowing creatures, um, and 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 our spiritual state um, shapes how we know what we can know to the extent that that we know, and so um, if we just think you know biblically for a second, um, you know Proverbs can say things like evil persons don't understand justice. So there's a there's a cognitive <laughs> There's a cognitive effect when we're rebels against the Lord, when we're unregenerate, when we're fighting the things of God, that affects our knowing. So one of the things I try to do with my students, and I tried to just introduce in that talk, is that um, we, are, we are knowing persons. We're living in God's world. We live on kind of His terms. And if we're rebels, or if our hearts are in the wrong place, that actually has cognitive consequences and so right. we don't know things and we pervert what we do know uh, we don't know as we ought to know um, and so the only way we can really know things as we ought is to know with a uh, mind and affections transformed by the blood of Christ I would say so mm -hmm. I worked through some key texts things like Romans 1 where God reveals himself in and through the created order, but we suppress that knowledge. So, you know, we've all experienced, or I hope we have experienced this, and when we try to share the gospel with with friends who don't know the Lord or family who don't know the Lord, is there's a, we feel like we're kind of beating our heads against the wall. Well, in part, that's because we are, because people, there's a, there's a deep spiritual, affective, cognitive, suppression of what is plain to us because God reveals himself through the created order. And so 
what I try to do is just kind of unpack some of that. So there's a, there's a great mm. quote, um, you know, Pascal. I turned to Pascal at, at one point, and if I can pull it up real quick, but Pascal, of course, the 17th century um, um, Christian thinker, and Pascal has this great um, quote where basically he says, um, not only is it through Jesus Christ alone that we know God, but it is only through Jesus Christ that we know ourselves. We know life and death only through Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, we do not know what our life, nor our death, nor God, nor, ourse nor ourselves really are. In the same way, without the scriptures, which have Jesus Christ as your sole subject, we know nothing and see only darkness and confusion in the nature of God and in nature itself. So Pascal was kind of central, Augustine, and I think take Pascal to be a 17th century Augustinian, essentially, of course, there in okay. France. So, and I think that's a different view of knowledge than sometimes um, we think about today. So if we think about knowledge today, uh, it's, it's uh, I can affirm objectivity, so I'm not going to do an anti-objectivity slant here, but Right. What knowledge becomes simply the downloading of data. It, it we kind of know neutrally. We just kind of are these neutral knowers. And Pascal, Augustine, many others, just make the point that in our knowing, we are knowing creatures, knowing on God's terms, and our spiritual states affect our affect our knowing, and yeah. that um, at the same time knowing is an affective reality. So if, for Augustine, if we don't love something or love someone, we don't know them as we ought, as we ought to know them. So our affections right. can confuse our knowledge, but as we come to know the Lord, there should be a growing in our knowledge and a growing in our uh, uh, affection for the things we know. So that's the very short version of the talk, and happy to pursue that as much as we like, Jason. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of good. Uh, that that's a great kind of refresher for me, and hopefully for my audience, they can go find that uh, either wherever it gets published or wherever yeah. the video comes out. Because I think that that gives us enough to work with in terms of some questions I have. Yeah. Um, one is related to kind of this this argument regarding presuppositionalism, which if my listeners. I've been listening for a while. Frame, when I interviewed John Frame, uh, you know, I was talking to him and I was like, I, you know, I kind of confess the same thing. I've never read Van Til necessarily. I've, I bought my first Van Til book, but I've read Frame and I yeah. wrote about Frame. Yeah. And so he calls himself a Van Tilian and then he, he designated me a Framian. And I was like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool. Uh, but there's kind of a big debate right now about presuppositionalism and natural theology and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and most of the times the precepts get a bad rap, in my opinion, because I, I just don't meet a lot of precepts that are that, uh, you know, that are that resistant to common grace and, and kind of yeah. natural theology per se. Yeah. But does, does Augustine or, or in, in, your, in your thinking... Is presuppositional still a fairly legitimate means of apologetics and evangelism? Yeah, yeah. So my sympathies lie there. I'll, I'll kind of say what I mean by that. Um, I think what my presuppositionalism can, in one sense, be, I'm going to simplify here, can be boiled down to taking Romans 1 seriously, um, yeah. essentially. Um so again, Paul in Romans 1 
starting in verse 18. Um, uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of those who suppress the truth. Now, and so as Paul fleshes that out, he, he says that um, not that all persons can know God or not that all persons make inferences to God. And I like Stephen Meyer. I like intelligent design folks. I think you got to find your friends where you can. And um, so I'm not picking on inference, but Paul's not saying that per se in Romans 1. What he's saying is, I think, that all persons know God and suppress it because God has made himself known in and through the created order. So if I, in my cheekier moments, I like to say that Van Til is like the ultimate evidentialist, right? In the sense that the evidence, it's not just that there's evidence and it kind of stacks up to 80 or 90% or the odds are with, odds are with being a theist versus being a non-theist. When Van Til writes, it's actually that everyone already is a theist, right? Everyone already, all right. persons already know God, but suppress it. So, in a sense, that's the heart of my presuppositionalism, is is starting with Romans 1 and unpacking its implications for uh, evangelism and apologetics. So, when I encounter a non-Christian, and of course, we all I hope we all have a lot of non-Christian friends or non-Christian associates that you know, we bump into, whatever, and spend some time with. In one sense, when I'm speaking to a non-Christian, I have a certain knowledge into their situation that they, in a sense, don't have or don't have fully. Um, I would say that my non-Christian friends know God and suppress it, so thus they're under the wrath of God, and they need to be un become unsuppressors by confessing <laughs> Christ as Lord. Um, and so on the question of, you know, natural theology, um, you know, Frame wrote a great little book on natural theology, but what he does in that, and it's a good book, what he does though is say, here's all the things scripture says about knowing God through the created order and God manifesting himself through creation. So I think it's a good book, but what Frame is doing is not saying we can build a theology just by looking at nature, at least the unregenerate person cannot, because the unregenerate person, to, to be to be somewhat snarky, the unregenerate person's natural theology is going to be a real short little book. Okay, in the sense sure. that the unregenerate person looks at the world, God reveals Himself efficaciously through through the created order but then pretend not to know that, right? So you're, right. you're always misinterpreting nature, even if in your heart of hearts, even if it's kind of squelched and buried, there's a knowledge of God in and through the created order. So I think, I think the critique that I, I would make of certain strands of natural theology, not natural revelation, you have to make a distinction there, um, of natural theology is the unregenerate person suppresses that, so the Natural Theology Project becomes a real short little one-page essay or something, you know, a half-page yeah. essay, it's short. So that, that's that the beginning, sense. Chase, yeah. Um, I think, you know, kind of correlated with that, I've, I've read uh, John Kilner's Dignity and Destiny, and, and 
you know, I hope I don't make too much of it. It's, uh, but it, it was really compelling to me. It's on um, uh, mankind in the image of God. And he just does a good job of clearing out a lot of brush uh -huh. and a lot of stuff we've added to that doctrine. And when I think about the way you've kind of expressed it and the way most people do as well, how we suppress the knowledge of God and how the knowledge of God is, is uh, available to all uh -huh. people, um, I think part of that knowledge uh, is also that we were designed to be in relationship with God, which is what Kilner suggests is the uh, is where the image should be most emphasized. Is yes. that we were designed for connection with God, and therefore, if that's the uh, if that's a type of knowledge that that we are relational beings that we were designed for connection. I mean, for God's yeah. sakes, we have the internet because people want to feel connected, exactly, and because people. Yes desire connection and that should be a clue for people that we are made for more that we desire more and so you can either even flip it in a way uh not inverted or, or perverted or any way but but to look at it from a different angle and say even if we were to look at the way people were designed anthropologically yeah then you can deduce that we were designed for god yeah um and so there's a type of knowledge that we're suppressing when we reduce our relational connection to either, um, you know, just just uh, uh, horizontal relationships instead of vertical or whatever yeah. like that. So I think that's an important aspect as well. Chase, can I can I piggyback on that? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, if we can go back to Augustine for a second, um, I think it's overlooked sometime, but in Augustine's book, De Trinitate, his book on the Trinity one way of making sense of that book is Augustine is already believes in the Trinity. Scripture teaches that tradition. Te he's there. He, he So he asked the question, what's this God going to be like that according to 1 Corinthians 13, 12, I'm going to see face to face that if he eventually goes inside the human person or psyche to look for so-called psychological analogies, but a lot more is going on than that. Cause what he, what he ends up doing is he asked the question, what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. Um, and he, 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 again, I think editors today would say, will you please cut this down? He kind of goes and goes and goes. <laughs> it's a fun read. It rambles and chases things. But what he says is, um, uh, he says, well, what's the, what's the best? Can I find vestiges of the Trinity in the human person? He goes to the mind. Cause that's kind of the heart of the image for Augustine. And he says, well, maybe it's the mind remembering, understanding, and loving itself. And you think he's going to stop there. But then he says, no, it's the mind remembering, understanding, and loving God. So what he ends up doing, if you can wade through the book, is he ends, if one wades through the book, is to say, the human person, this is contra Descartes, the human person is not just a set of faculties, but the human person is being most fully and truly human when those faculties are being exercised in the knowledge of God. Mm. So if, if Descartes can say, I think, therefore I am, so it's just the cogitating person that's the heart of being human, something like this. Sure. For Augustine, it's when I'm loving God. To Augustine, it's if I love God, I am. Right, I love God, therefore yeah. I am. And so there's a sense in which, in a pre-modern, more Christian anthropology, 
what marks us out, you gotta be, you don't want to call a non-Christian not human, but what marks us off, we might say, is most fully realizing our humanity is yeah. when we're relating to the triune God in love. And that's yeah. a beautiful thing, I think, to, to, to offer a more fully Christian anthropology in light of what we're being told today makes us human. Absolutely. And, and it really does connect to, you mentioned pre-modern anthropology, because I think one of my f concerns is how we articulate that well, because I think it can, I think even uh, Luther or Calvin, I can't remember which one, so I'm not going to identify this idea with either one, but yep. at least one of them suggested that if you are unregenerate, you have lost the image of God, uh -huh. um, which people would be horrified. Uh, most evangelicals would be horrified if any pastor said that today, but based on kind of what you're saying, you can kind of see how they would make that kind of suggestion that somehow if you're not regenerate or you don't have a loving relationship with God, then you, you, you have lost the image mm. and the image is, <clears throat> is not just tarnished, but it's, uh, it's gotta be restored. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I, I might state it a little differently. I think, um, and if, if, if I'm wrong, I apologize. I think they both would say something like we have the image, but it, it it's, it's, it's in need of kind of some radical reconstruction and healing. Okay. Yeah. And, and, um, and so the, 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 um, and, and Van Til does something with this in his book, Common Grace in the Gospel. So if you've not got into Van Til yet, his, to me, Common Grace in the Gospel is, is uh, I've, read a, I've read a good chunk of his corpus, but that, to me, that's maybe one of the, the highlights. Because he says, he, he writes in there, even the non-Christian, they bear the image, but he has this notion of differentiation. The, the, the non-Christian, as he, as he or she walks through life, still kind of has this echo of pre-fall Adam there. There's, I, you know, being made in the image of God, being made for a certain thing. And the non-Christian is not yet as, as, how do you say it best? They're not yet what they will be if they fully persist in their rebellion. There's kind of sure. this, you're, you're, you're being more and more conformed, not to the image of the Son, but being conformed to your ultimate future if you refuse to repent and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Yep. So what he does with this, then he says, even, even the person who will come to faith, you know, before, they, before they come to faith, they're still a rebel. Right, they're they're not yet yeah. they're not yet transferred into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves, Colossians one thirteen or fourteen. So he has he has this notion of kind of the, you know the history is running and and the person who is a rebel is not yet as we might say fully their future is not fully realized yet. There's right. this kind of echo of pre-fall Adam there. There's still image bears. But there, if they persist in their rebellion, then you know the future is, of course, quite dire. But I would recommend that book, Common Grace in the Gospel. It is, a, I think, a, a, a wonderful way to get into Van Til. That's great. Uh, one question with the affections that that I kind of have, and I I ask this to a lot of people that I have on the podcast, mm. just because it's something that kind of haunts me as someone who grew up in the Southern Baptist Church and uh, has a more pietistic strain um first uh, you know clarifying affections are when we think about affections and it, it's kind of a 
a big word that you know we read uh, religious affections by jonathan edwards or other books yeah but when we're talking about affections are we talking about kind of the will the desires and the emotions kind of all together or how would you articulate kind of a a definition of affections that people can latch on to uh it's a good question when i when i wrote my little piece for newton house and why think about this you know, I, I got to say first, I think everyone at some point is a Southern Baptist. I mean, I meet more people <laughs> who say I was, I went to VBS, I came to faith. So whatever, you know, I'm still Southern Baptist. Whatever you think about, you know, like half the world gets converted because of Southern Baptist, it seems That's like. That's right. You know? That's right. Um, and so praise the Lord for that. But um, um, so I think, you know, speaking of Baptists and, you know, say Presbyterians and, and, um, I'm thinking of, say, a Southern context. There's, there's, a, there's a deep heart, affective element to the Christian faith. Yeah. Um, and, and in our knowledge of God, it is not just data, but since God's a person, or tri-personal, and he can be known, he can also be loved, and there's an affective relationship. Um, so I take affections to do, be dealing with the heart. I think you can include emotions and will there. It's, you know, it's kind of like if I, uh, when you meet your wife, you know, when you meet the girl you're going to, you're going to marry, you're not just, you know, saying, uh, what's your favorite color? Okay. Check. Thanks. What's your favorite music? <laughs> check. But there's, there's heart affective stuff going on here and it, it, can be a beautiful, a beautiful thing. If you think about the Westminster, you know, catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him. Mm. So I love systematic theology. I love teaching theology. And a part of that whole reality of, of theology, of knowing God, is enjoy. He's to be enjoyed. And that's because of who he is as a tri-personal being, who at the heart of who he is is love. It's not the only attribute, but certainly it's central. And therefore, God is to be enjoyed and loved. And so when I, when I think of affections, I'm thinking of that, that, that world. Okay, that's great. That's really helpful. Um, yeah, and, and I think I, I wouldn't quibble with anything like that because the, the the faculties the affections in church history these are always something that good pastors theologians are are wrestling with and right. how to articulate them helpfully for people one of the things um and i you used the phrase earlier in the podcast and so i want to drill down on it for you know i've got people in my church listening and yeah. even myself when i when i hear this phrase um you know, I want to unpack it a bit. And it's the idea of, is your heart right with Jesus? And so one way this gets put up sometimes in churches is, uh, you know, before we take communion, we base it off of Corinthians. And, and Paul says, uh, you know, uh, you don't want to take communion in an unholy manner. Right. And so you should examine, you know, your own, your own heart, your own relationships. Um, and so when we think about kind of, is our heart right with Jesus? Um, what are some ways that we can kind of diagnose our affections um, without, because I, I think what I've, what I experienced sometimes in my own spiritual journey with kind of walking with Jesus is the tyranny of the affections where yeah. I would, I would make my emotional state the barometer of my connection with Christ. 
And then yeah. it becomes very subjective and not objective and on the finished work of Christ, who yeah. uh, the, the reality of what he's accomplished, it becomes very uh, just, you know, teenage angsty, emotional yeah. uh, camp highs, that kind of thing. So yeah. help me kind of unpack that idea. That's, that's the way I, we need a second podcast, I think, in a sense, almost. Um, yeah, as soon as you started talking, Chase, I thought of, you know, First Peter 3.15, depending on the translation, the ESV, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. I think the ESV mm. is set apart Christ as, as Lord. Um, you know, the end of 2 Corinthians uh, what, 13, is it 5? Uh, examine yourself, these kind of apostolic, Pauline, biblical uh, commands. Um, so, yeah, I think... Um, when I think of the affections and our heart, and the Lord's Supper is a good, um, a good example, we might think of the Scripture says, you know, if if you have someone against, if you have something against someone, we go be reconciled. Well, that that has an affective sense, but it also has a ontological: <laughs> is there actual guilt or is there actual sin right. that yeah. is is there? Um, you know, I think. You can emphasize the heart without getting into just a baseless mysticism or just a kind of a, a wide-ranging, unhinged, uh, angsty thing. If if every time I hear someone's name, I get viscerally frustrated or viscerally, you know, you know, maybe you can lean on your heart there in the sense that if I, every time I hear someone's name, I get depressed or I get angry. Well, you probably need to do some soul searching and say, well, am I holding something against this person? Mm. Um, and do I need to forgive them? You know, maybe, maybe not a personal confrontation, but do I need to forgive someone who's wronged me? I, perhaps you've been betrayed and I need to if every time that person's name comes to me, I'm getting viscerally worked up, well, there's probably something going on, and I need right. to, um, I need to forgive that person in my heart. You know, I think of the work of like someone like Don Whitney. You know, and how do I know if I'm a Christian? So assurances gets into kind of your question there. Well, mm -hmm. and th there can be objective markers. Do I have a love for God? Do I love the Scriptures? Is there a is there a desire to be with the people of God? Is there a right. desire to worship with my local fellowship? So those can be somewhat subjective. Doesn't always doesn't always have to be a bad word. That can, there can sure. be a subjective sense of that, but that can also be, you know, if I have no desire for the people of God, if I really love sin all the time, have no sense of sorrow. Well, you can you can kind of stack those up, I think, without being overly, in an unhealthy way, sure. subjective. But so you you combine all that with deep reading of the scripture, study of the scripture, hearing scripture preach, and all that combined maybe can help us from going off the wheels in kind of a an unhealthy subjectivism. So I, I think it also has to be a case by case basis, you know. You probably have people in your church, Chase, who they maybe struggle with being overly anxious. You may have one or two where you're thinking in your heart, hmm, 
I wish they were a tad more anxious, right? <laughs> you sure. know, they need yeah. some more sensitivity. And that it's just sure. takes pastoral wisdom and good teaching of Scripture to, to help people kind of you know, work those things out. But that's a big question, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I mean, that's not to plug my own book, but that's that is part of the reason I think triperspectivalism and frame yeah. with the uh, existential, the normative and the situational can be can be a helpful discipleship tool. It can be a bit, you know, dense or too much, but that 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 at least has resolved a lot of the tension because uh. uh, I think as people, you're never going to fully realize that tension resolved. It's going to be. It, it, yeah, I don't think you should. I mean, yeah. if you claim to arrive at some kind of godlike finality on your spiritual walk and that you've graduated from discipleship, that I don't have any questions, doubts, or, you know, I don't have ups and downs, it's like, well, you're not even human anymore. I mean, yeah. part of being human means being dependent, being finite, and being impacted by what I eat and yeah. my health and, like, uh, my relationships in life. And so I think that. His uh his triad there can be really helpful to yeah. to kind of untangle some knots that we just get into, just by you know uh, assumptions or or reading the text or things we've heard. That's great. Um, yeah, well done. So I, I I think with with the rest of the show I, w- I want to turn it a little bit, um and and here's why because I was surprised when I. I was over there and I hear you talking and we're talking a lot of the same language here. You're, you're, you're helping me think more clearly about this stuff. Cause this is a big passion of mine, yeah. uh, spiritual, spiritual disciplines, Christian spirituality. And then I, all of a sudden I come across, I'm, I've been reading American reformer. Yeah. I think they're putting out great content. Yeah. And I, I see this article come out and you, you've written on critical theory and, and my guess now I've, I've talked about critical theory and, and, uh, yours is one of the more in-depth analyses mm. Um, and for a lot of people, critical theory, critical race theory, whatever you want to call it, it's become, become, they claim it's a boogeyman, you know, it's a right wing talking point, all this kind of stuff. And so maybe, maybe what I would like to talk about, cause I'm going to drop a link to that article and people okay. can go read it. And I, it's really great. Oh, thank but you. why did you, why did you feel compelled to articulate it in that way? What kind of spurred you yeah. on to write that article? Hey, yeah. Thank you, Chase. Um, it's a great question. You know, I think a lot of times writing, it's something gets in your craw, right? You, you get a you get a stone in your, your shoe or something. Just it irritates yep. you, and you're like, I want to make sense of that. So I guess going back several years, I um, I said, you know, I've read about critical theory, but I've not really read much of the primary sources. I I just felt like if I was going to say anything, I needed to say I needed to dive into the the sources a bit. Um, the, um, I mean, I, I, I was somewhat familiar with Marcuse. I had not read anything by Max Horkheimer or Theodore Adorno. Um, probably the summer of 20 kind of lit a fire under many of us, just trying to yeah. figure out what's happening. And I, right. and I thought some of, our, some of our leaders in our circles, I thought, wow, I don't think I'm hearing what I need to hear. I, I just thought there was a, there was something of a vacuum. And I was like, what's, yeah. what's going on? I even got letters from, I won't say whom, but this or that institution. Anyway, I won't go there. All that is to say, I just kind of woke up and said, I need to make sense of this, this world of, of thought. So I began to dig in. Um, Melvin Tinker's written a very good book uh, called That Hideous Strength, kind of a popular introduction. The same title as C.S. Lewis's work on purpose. Um, hmm. 
So I began to read the primary sources just to try to understand what was happening in our culture. Now, I'll make a distinction between critical race theory and critical theory. Critical sure. theory is a very is a very distinct uh, school of thought or number of voices going back to the 20s in, in Frankfurt, Germany. Um, they themselves at times will speak of themselves as cultural Marxists, so that's not a... Uh, it, is an, uh, it is an interesting thing. Why is an interest in this all of a sudden kind of dismisses kind of right-wing talking points. Right. It's bizarre because it is, a, it is a very distinct, uh, a large body of literature um, and not subtle. It's not, it's not a subtle thing. So right. I wrote my piece to try to just to do a brief analysis. It's not that brief. It's like 30 pages printed. <laughs> um, and I think one way to, for a Christian to wrap your mind around it is as something like an alternative theology, an alternative religion, with its own notion of creation or reality, its own notion of sin, salvation, redemption, and something of an eschatology, yep. something of a view of history. Yep. The other reason I wanted to write it is that is, is while I've benefited from the work of people like James Lindsay, you know, James Lindsay's a fascinating fellow. He's a proclaimed atheist, but he's right. kind of softened, it seems, towards Christians. He kind of likes us, in a sense, now, which is very interesting. Um, yep. And um, But at the end, Lindsay's really saying the answer is Enlightenment liberalism, and that's, sure. that's the answer. And I thought, well, that's I'm happy to learn from Lindsay, but at the end, a Christian... We've got a lot of resources to, to articulate a social theory or a view of social life or a view of political order. And right. I, I just kind of want to take a stab at saying, here, here's what I take it to be, an alternative theology. And Christianity offers a better social theory and a better understanding of all the things critical theory is trying to touch. Yeah, I think that's that's great. And that's something I've I've tried to articulate for people and, you know, positing that it's an alternative theology and the way you articulated it there. I've, I've seen other people do that well, but you do a, a great job of it where it's, it, it has its own conception of, you know, all the questions that people are asking, right. how do we get here? What went wrong? How do we make it right? And where is it all going? Yes. And it's making, it's providing very clear answers to those. And so I think what can be frustrating as a, as a leader, as a thinker, um, who's not afraid to express myself and my thoughts on these yeah. things is like, you know, the, the literature is very, uh, it's very set, like you said, uh, clear, like it's, they're not hiding no. what they're trying to do in no. their, uh, in their approach or anything like that. And, uh, when we just kind of dismiss it or we, we do that kind of thing, I think we're just burying our head in the sand. Yeah. Um, it's a good point. It's really sad. No, it's, it's a good, it's a good point. Um, I'm happy to correspond with anyone who read. I'm thinking of turning it into a book or short book. So if your readers have criticism, I'd love to get any criticisms before I try to do anything more with it. But oh, your listeners. Um, and it, it's. I would say this. It, it is. You know. Um, forget who said this. Uh, it'll come to me. But um, folks have sp spoken about the the moral obligation to be intelligent. And I don't mean to sound elitist mm -hmm. there, but there's a Sure. I think there's a Christian moral duty to understand the signs of the times and to understand the mm -hmm. ideas that are 
having an influence uh, inside and outside the church, and um, and and it's this stuff is seeping down into your everyday life, and um, and um, but I'd say I'd say if if you can manage the time to get into the primary sources, it's pretty illuminating because because you know the critical theorists Adorno and Horkheimer were kind of looking at, you know, starting in the 20s, going into the 30s, they were looking at modern culture and trying to figure out what has gone wrong. And then you get to, like, after World War II, um, and people like Richard Weaver, Ideas Have Consequences, are really kind of asking the exact same questions. How do we get to the middle of the 20th century and the violence and the destruction in two world wars. There was kind of a soul searching amongst various intellectuals. Um, you know, people sometimes forget that a magazine like the Christian Century was really that title comes from this notion that maybe the 20th century is the great post millennial hope that everything's going to be made right. And huh. and you get to the mid 20th century, and folks are saying, hmm. Well, maybe what's gone wrong? And so one of the things the critical theorists are saying is the Enlightenment has not brought the great, beautiful society we hoped it would bring. So what's wrong with the Enlightenment? Sure. And that's why Ordorno and Horkheimer's book, the, the, the um, oh heavens, Dialectic of Enlightenment, is about is how the Enlightenment didn't bring you know, all that we hoped it would bring. Um, sure. And what do we do now? So... It, for Christians trying to work through how to live faithful lives in the present, how to think about social order, understanding the understanding critical theory can be a lot of help. I think you're driven if you're, I think if we're faithful, we're driven to articulate a distinctly Christian understanding of our problems and of social order and and the solutions. Yeah, it really helps me because when I'm pastoring people, it uh, you know, it's every week now that I'm pastoring somebody who's at work being introduced to drag queens on their lunch break, um, yeah. and it's through the HR departments and all this kind of stuff. And you know what the danger with something like studying this kind of stuff is the same thing I when I studied Frame, it becomes a kind of a theory of everything. Yeah, but really. You know, once you see kind of the neo-Marxist, whether you want to call it a revolution or not, I, I personally think it's a useful word to describe what has been going on with Gramsci's kind of long march through the institutions idea yep. is all of a sudden it gives you a grid for processing. Why is my local news channel celebrating this young person mutilating their gender as if it's a victory? Yeah. And, and, and you can start, like, before you kind of understand what critical theory is, you, you just see these little instances, and it disturbs you, but what's happening to you is you're being slowly desensitized to the inevitable result of the revolution that, that is kind of happening right in front of us yes. through, uh, through television, media, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so what it's helped me do is, like, put my foot down turn off, you know, be very careful about what my kids watch, mm -hmm. uh, be very, you know, my kids are only nine and seven, but yep. they know that if we go in a store and it's adorned with the trans flag, dad is probably not going to go in there anymore. Right. Um, right. Because it's a sign 
of that revolution unfolding. Now, I'm not dogmatic on that. I'm not saying every Christian's got to do that. And and I was joking with my friends the other day, if I'm still in a pinch and I need a cup of coffee, I'm going to go in there. But <laughs> it's it's uh, it's just to suggest, look, as Christians, you got to be able to kind of, like you said, know the times. Jesus even says that. Yes. And, and what you do, just if you'll read one thing, like your great article, um, what you're going to do is you're going to start being able to dot and line up some things like, why when I go into Target, why is every mannequin all of a sudden very robust? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and they're all connected in terms of kind of their their inversion of both beauty, order, and um, and God's design for the world. It's a great point. No, it's I think revolution is not a bad it's not a bad term, and the critical theorists use that term. I think I mean <laughs> yeah. it's not like it's not like it's not a conservative, you know, whatever. So Marcuse, if you you know his book Eros and Civilization. And then the subtitle is it's a study in Freud. So he takes Freud as his is kind of the the, the, uh, the paradigm. Um, it's clear, you know. I mean, the brief the brief thing is with Marcuse is you've got um, the reality principle and the pleasure principle, which he gets from Freud. The pleasure principle is largely sexual. It's sexual erotic pleasure. The, the reality principle is that civilization can't function if we all obey the pleasure principle. And so right. the reality principle, though, so we live with this reality principle. We can't have order. We can't have civilization if we're all just out engaging in unfettered sexual uh, license. But Marcuse is very clear. The goal has to be the defeat of the reality principle in the light of the pleasure principle. And this takes through, he uses terms like regeneration. You know, so it mm. is the, the spiritual theological language being used here. Wow. And so the goal is unfettered sexual pleasure. And mm. this is why with a ch encouraging a child to start taking drugs, you know, that, that cannot be undone and mutilating your genitals is that child is being corrupted and that child, that child is being hurt by mom and dad and a pastor and say a Christian school inhibiting their full sexual expression. And right. so it does go back to Marcuse in that sense. And there's deeper spiritual demonic stuff, whatever. But it is, you have to have unfettered sexual license if you're going to be free and happy. Mm. And so if you're trying to make sense of what's happening in the schools and in the culture, Mark, you know, spending a day or two, you know, you'll need a spiritual detox when you're done. Yeah. Is read Marcuse's Eros and Civilization. It's all right there. And mm. it is... Um, it's sad, it's wicked, and it's sad, but um, it's, th these people aren't subtle. It, it's all right yeah. there in the literature. Yeah, and, and you can see it today. I mean, I, I don't like promoting this account, not because, uh, for two reasons. One, it's called Libs of TikTok on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't, when I share with people, it just sounds like a, you know, a, a joke account because of the name. 
But then the other reason is uh, it just shows videos of yeah. what's happening. Yes. And so if you watch it, it's just, you know, there's a warning there. Um, but, you know, you, you look at what's happening at these drag queen story hours or these, you know, oh. Sunday morning brunches at, and you see these kids being put on stripper poles or putting oh, it's, dollar it, bills. It's a tragedy. You know? It's a tragedy. It's it's absolutely horrible, but it's the it is the the linear trajectory yeah. of a direct connection to what you're suggesting. Yeah. I'll mention one other thing, Chase. There's a great snippet, a video snippet with Camille Paglia. I don't know if you've seen this, but Camille Paglia no. is a feminist. I think she's in the past called herself bisexual and She's kind of a, she's a provocateur, and um, there's a great um, long in a, uh, discussion between her and Jordan Peterson, and they both totally okay. agree on the dangers of postmodernism, but the one I really want to recommend is she's at a conference, and it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a conference kind of promoting the stuff we're, you know, that we're concerned about, um, yeah. and the, the interviewer says, well, Camille, what do you think about gender transition amongst children and teenagers? And Camille says, this is absolutely child abuse. It is tough enough when you're 13 to go through puberty. What in the world are we doing encouraging children to do this? So when, when someone like Camille Paglia, who in her own admission is completely opposed to anything to do with historic Christianity, is calling right. what this child abuse, people should kind of stand up and listen and say, wow, if Paglia thinks this is the problem, you know, what, what, what do we do with this? So anyway, I think your listeners yeah. might enjoy her, her, it's a brilliant little uh, snippet she has. That's great. I'll put a link to yeah. that. And, and just kind of a final encouragement. Yep. If you're a pastor listening, you know, my, my heart for pastors today is um, you need to get honest with what's happening. Um, you know, I saw, I saw one of my friends commented yesterday, you may be consider yourself super conservative, you know, behind closed doors, but if your church doesn't know, you know, kind of like where you're leading and where you're standing on this stuff, you don't have to get crazy and conspiratorial on it, No, but your church needs to get equipped and built up on, on this stuff to resist, uh, because it's not, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's stopping anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, good for you, Chase. I think even just basic biblical Christian teaching on what does it mean to be human and on sexuality right. and you don't have to be reactionary, uh, mean spirited, right. but just to clearly teach, clearly teach the scriptures and help people to think through and ask tough questions, reading groups, etc. So glad you're doing what you're doing, my friend. Thanks so much. Well, yeah. thanks so much for joining me for the podcast, Dr. Green. It's been great to be here, Chase. Blessings to you, my friend. All right, thanks. Hey, if you're a listener and you enjoyed this show, I'd love for you to give it a great rating. Share it with a friend, uh, start a conversation, um, and, and really just help other people think more deeply about this stuff, whether it was our section on talking about affections for Jesus, knowledge, or even critical theory. All these can be really useful uh, nowadays. So go ahead and give it a great rating, subscribe, hit the notification icon. I've got the Patreon link in the bio, so sign up for that at any dollar amount. That's going to help me out, and we will see you next time. 